G7 leaders met virtually yesterday for an emergency meeting about the Russia-Ukraine war. What more can be done to help bring this conflict to an end, especially after the bombardment of the last couple of days? With some insight, we're joined this morning by our friend Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and expert in Eastern European affairs. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for joining us again. Hello. Hello and good morning. Good morning. Lots of uh, bombing going on. Probably some of the, I guess, the, the biggest bombardment we've seen as of yet, perhaps. Yes, what do yes. we know about was, yesterday's yes, G- G7 the meeting? highest escalation. Yes, it was. They hit, they hit the, a, a wide swath of Ukraine, more, in, more uh, targets in one day throughout all of Ukraine than at any other time previous in this war. The other key thing about the nature of the bombing was that it hit, in some cases, right downtown, like in Kiev. They hit the government buildings, or government district, yeah, some buildings. Uh, they hit uh, tourist areas. This was had been, up till now, off-limits. They had mostly focused on infrastructure, uh, uh, the electrics, uh, you know, which they still went after, but they had diverted into other areas now, too. This was a most definite signal of an escalation. Signal of an uh, escalation, Andrew. Uh, But can we point our fingers at the one thing that was the ramp-up point? Was it the Crimea bridge explosion? That was maybe the visible trigger. But uh, this operation had been planned for for some time now. And this is also in response to uh, two other issues. Uh, One, uh, Putin and, well, the Russian military has not been very successful. In fact, they've had uh, significant operational defeats in the last few weeks, as we've talked about. There is also um, a growing dissent in Russia. And I'm not just referring to the people who are, don't want to get mobilized or trying to run away, the younger crowd, but amongst the more established uh, elites, uh, those who we call ultra-nationalists, who are actually criticizing for Putin uh, for not doing enough in Ukraine, for, for having suffered those setbacks, and, and Putin is, in a way, reacting to that criticism by showing, look, I'm doing more. So he's made them, he's made the ultranationals happy with this operation. He's taking care of that political spectrum. Andrew, what do we know about that uh, emergency G7 meeting that was done virtually yesterday? Yeah, so basically um, they did uh, two things. Um, on the military side, they basically uh, uh, acceded to, uh, to Zelensky's request for more uh, anti, anti, anti-missile systems, uh, which they have, and they did use effectively uh, on Sunday. They, they, uh, they may have knocked out about 50% of the incoming Russian uh, missiles, but they need more, and uh, there's a possibility, a strong one, that Russia may repeat this. So the, the, the U.S. has pledged more, and Germany also stepped up and said they are actually sending some anti, anti-missile systems like as we speak. The other thing that the G7 communique said yesterday was that they were prepared to support Ukraine in a winter war situation, which meant extra support, uh, because winter will be stressful and more costly for the military, but also for the people themselves. And so this is an acknowledgement, actually, now that this war is not ending anytime soon and that uh, everyone needs to be prepared for uh, a long-haul war, certainly throughout the winter. With that winter war... Andrew, that we're looking ahead to, does one side, is one side more favored? Is, is this is more challenging for the Russian invaders or for the defenders in Ukraine? 
Generally, in a winter war situation, the defender is favored because offensive movement is more difficult in in, in rough weather conditions. Uh, that doesn't preclude offensive actions, particularly once the ground freezes. When it's when it's soft, then it's very difficult to move. But when it gets very cold, then movement becomes possible. But again, you are moving in you know sub-zero weather, which is very cold, and and uh, people just don't move as fast as they do with all the winter garb and the conditions of winter uh, weather than in summertime. So it's I think overall I'd say the defense is favored. Andrew, let's talk a little bit about um, yesterday was. Um uh, President Biden that that uh, uttered the term war crimes yet again. So, are are what is what's happening in Ukraine? Can it be labeled as war crimes? And will Putin ever be tried as a war criminal? Do you think? Yeah. Well, two two key things. One is that there there is an international process, the International Court of Justice, which is examining the continual uh, violence uh, against civilians uh, in Ukraine, and they are making those assessments. Now, the the law of war is very specific about what constitutes a war crime, what is legitimate, you know, kinetic action and violence against an opponent. Now, there, and, and the, 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 there's, a, there's a whole legal body of opinion on that, and that is being addressed by the experts. As far as uh, uh, trying uh, Putin and, let's say, his leadership on that, that remains a very distant prospect because, first of all, um, you have to capture him. Uh, in order to capture him, you either have to defeat Russia completely, and they're a nuclear superpower, so that is a, a very big challenge, uh, or there's a regime change, and then you have to assume that the regime change favors the West. And right now, the most speculation is if there is a regime change, it'll get tougher and harder, so Putin would be protected. So the possibility of Putin and his senior government officials being tried is remote. The, the fact that they actually will put up charges in the Hague and so on, yes, but how the trial, whether he'll be in the dock is quite remote. But we, again, do not know how this war will end and when it will end. Not sure about the ending, and uh, there's so many questions as far as being sure about the quality and skill of the Russian soldiers that are being put onto the front lines right now. Andrew, we heard, what, a couple weeks ago that uh, there were going to be another 300,000 troops added, and we've heard that maybe 60,000 deaths uh, for the Russian side. How reliable is this information, Andrew, and what do we know about the quality of the soldiers on the front line? Yeah, the, the numbers of deaths and so on right now, those figures are not, there's nothing reliable on either the Ukrainian or the Russian side. So we just have to understand that there are significant losses of life and casualties for both militaries as well as civilians in Ukraine. But now the mobilization question is a very good one and, and quite pertinent to the fact that one of the other things Putin has done to placate the uh, the ultranationalists, uh, he, he did the the, mobilize, the, the partial mobilization. That's partial, 300,000. They could go to 800,000 if they went all out. Um, but they partially mobilized, and that partial mobilization, by all evidence, besides the fact people who are running away and actually not uh, being uh, subjecting themselves to mobilization, those that are coming, we're hearing reports, I think reasonably accurate, that there's uh, a lot of drunkenness going on, uh, the, the equipment's not there, even some of the uniforms are not there. And I think that those, those um, reservists who are mobilized and actually equipped are being put in the line rather quickly, perhaps not with all the training we would expect reservists to have as a refresher training. Uh, and they're putting in piecemeal to replace the, uh, the significant losses that the Russian forces are experiencing in the front.
Andrew, we always appreciate your time and, and breaking things down for us. Thanks for joining us this morning. You're very welcome. Thank Thanks. You. Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and expert in Eastern European affairs.